0: I would definitely focus on my portfolio as much as possible. Um, Make it seem like even if I didn't have real world experience, I would make sure that I at least did enough research uh, and did enough side projects that I had something to show for it to be able to showcase my thought process Um, going from point A to point B, what kind of research that I've put into it to make this project uh, and then what kind of a pseudo final product I can uh, showcase to my potential employer.
1: Hello, friends. My name is Kirill, and you're listening to my UX Career Podcast. On this podcast, I'm sharing my personal thoughts on how to start a career path in UX, how to grow your skills and become a better designer. Also, I have conversations with other designers and design leaders trying to show that there are many different perspectives and opinions on the key questions about UX career. So if you're a UX designer or considering becoming one, this podcast will get you better prepared for finding a job in UX. Opinions expressed on this podcast are my own and do not necessarily reflect the views of my current or previous employers. And don't forget, this is just one human's point of view. Today I'm talking to Joyce Logan, Joyce is a senior UX professional with more than 10 years of experience across different industries. This is an episode from the Q&A with Design Manager series. Joyce shares her thoughts on how to stand out from others, what makes a good portfolio and resume, the future of the UX design profession, uh, pros and cons of UX bootcamps, and a lot more. Hope you find this valuable. Thank you Joyce, for coming to this show today and uh, for being willing to share your perspective on some of the key questions uh, that the junior and entry-level designers have right now and they're struggling with so I really appreciate your time and especially with your situation like multitasking being uh, a mother now uh, which we can hear in the background which is so cool so kind of, I really appreciate that you want to, to wanted to find time to help others as well. Let's start with your, I guess, the current role before you uh, you went uh, on on a leave. And uh, what company? What exactly do there? What's the scope of of your job there?
0: Yeah, so I manage the digital UX team at Coast Capital. And just as a little quick disclaimer, uh, any tips and opinions that I have that I'll share will just be my own. It doesn't represent my team nor the company um but other than that uh yeah so that's that's my current role there right before I left for mat leave and I'm assuming will be when I'm back um and so we have a smaller team um I was the one that started the team uh 4 years ago uh it started with just me and then we were able to grow it to have a visual designer a user researcher and now we have 3 UX designers one visual designer one UX writer um and one researcher. Wait, did I already say researcher? Something yeah. like that. So it's a total of seven people, including myself.
1: That's nice. So you you're the only manager of this team? Yes. hmm And you even have a UX writer. That's that's actually a really good um indicator of uh the design maturity uh at the company. That's good. I like to hear that. Um okay, so Let's kick it off with the story like and I want to understand why did you even start in this industry and uh, what was your motivation and maybe you can recall the moment when you realized that you were really so passionate about this or it was just like a matter of uh, some kind of chance and stumbling upon this uh, trajectory and uh, a quick overview of the of the steps in your career on your t- career trajectory and um the path like the key roles maybe and um, how it evolved.
0: Yeah, so I actually went to school at SFU in their um, School of Interactive Arts and Technology program. And I went there because I had wanted to pursue video game design. Mm. Um, But very quickly I discovered I was terrible at 3D animation, which I thought I would be good at, but I wasn't. And I was terrible at programming. So that really didn't do me any favors for that industry considering that's the core, the bulk of most of the jobs in video game design. Mm Um, But I discovered that I quite liked um, being able to interact with customers, understanding their needs, and being able to put more of a science to the design rather than just aesthetics and making things uh, appealing from a visual standpoint. So um, I interned at a web agency as my first job. So I I was in the co-op program, so I did some internships. Um, And so my first job was uh, a market research analyst at a web agency in Calgary and from there I got to shadow a lot of different roles including information architect, um, a visual designer, a user researcher and so I kind of got a better understanding of the different roles and how it converged Uh, especially because at that point um, UX was really new and I don't even know if a lot of people knew the term itself, user experience, because it is a fairly a young f- field, I would say, in terms of officially calling it something. But there was some existence of it in an, an official capacity for as long as technology has existed.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Um, so that was my first job. Um, and then after that, I worked at Kodak back in the day before they shut down completely. And I worked on their UX team learned a lot there. Um, So I did a 16, in total I did 16 months of internship across three companies. And then I graduated during the recession.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, But by then when I graduated, I knew I really wanted to focus on um, the kind of wireframing part because that was where my passion was and also doing some of the usability testing. I thought that was the most interesting part of the whole UX end to end. Uh, Visual design, I could do, but it wasn't my favorite. And programming, I can't do at all. So (laughs) I didn't even, I never pretended to be a full stack developer or anything like that. I was always very transparent with my skills and weaknesses. Um, And then because I graduated during the recession, I really just had, I didn't have a lot of opportunity to find something super relevant at that point. I was open to... Doing more internships if they were available, but there was just not a lot of option at all when I graduated. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I ended up taking actually a communication and design job. So it was graphic design and communication, Um, and my part of my degree was communications, so it was okay. And then from there, then I finally, uh, after a couple years, I was able to move back into UX design full time. And so I worked for a medical imaging company. kind of worked from as a junior designer, and so I learned a lot there. And then I moved to UBC, which was also a very different experience because when you go from private sector medical Mm -hmm. um, to public sector education, you really see the different nuances in terms of uh, the people you work with, like coworkers um, and their dynamics, um, the velocity of things that get released, uh the type of concerns that you have to be aware of in terms of when you're designing a system because obviously for medical it's a very different set of concerns as um as are different from education and so then i kind of had a good a good comparison of all the um the nuances that would really make or break a system for yeah. example a student versus a doctor. Um, And it's a lot of things that you don't think about until you're in that industry, because you're like, Oh, of course, right. This is Mm -hmm. how you would use it. This is the environment that it's used in. Of course, this matters in this context, but not in this other context. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then afterwards I moved to a startup, um, which actually I think that's where I met you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was e-commerce. And again, that was, also very different and you probably can speak to that as well since you work at Amazon where e-commerce it's not necessarily about making it the most usable but it's it's trying to allow the customer to feel like they have the freedom of choice and to be able to buy what they need um, without having to use things like dark patterns Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not necessarily like making it user-friendly. It's more of how do we get them to put something in their cart. So it's like there, there are some differences in terms of goal and goals, especially when you're comparing e-commerce to something like trying to take a course or trying to diagnose someone. Um, true, true. Yeah. And then I ended up at video games finally. Um, <laughs> so I did did get to experience my dream job. <laughs> Um, so I worked at a small mobile video game company for a little more than a year. That was very different than what I expected, especially when you're doing user experience for it. Because when you think of games, you're not necessarily going, oh, that was a really easy control. Mm -hmm. Um, you're, you still want the fun factor, um. Unfortunately, there's game... Des- well, not unfortunately, but game designers are not user experience designers, so you have to have that really good relationship with them to balance out the fun factor versus how easy it is to wrap yeah. up on that main kind of core mechanic of that particular game because things could get repetitive, things could get tedious, things could be totally impossible to use in the first place. Like you, Maybe the battle system is so complicated that just people can't even get through the first battle. Something like Uh that, just as an Uh example. Or um, people want to buy things. How do you get them to buy things? So there's also, the. it's funny because e-commerce comes back into it where how do you get people to purchase stuff within the game? Because a lot of games now, they're more of you buy stuff in the game, but you don't pay for the game itself. Uh Um, Obviously, there's different types of games that require different types of payment systems. Uh, But yeah, so there's like a lot of different um, dynamics there as well that you have to balance to make sure that it's not just, oh yeah, well, it's easy, but it's like the most boring game ever or Mm -hmm. uh, vice versa, right? Very fun, but too difficult to learn that people will fall off before they get the hang of it.
1: Yeah, that's true. And I've always perceived like the game design world is, I've never worked in in any of those companies, but. I found it quite interesting challenge, exactly like balancing the the ease of use and some kind of surprise element. So it's not like really you want to minimize the friction in every single uh, scenario, right? So you want to really find this golden balance between the two to also keep the engagement up and not just kind of help them complete the task um as exactly. as like as fast as possible um and like mm-hmm. with fewer clicks so to say so it's it's an interesting challenge for sure definitely very special to the gaming i think industry and like entertainment maybe as well some other areas
0: yeah so so that's kind of interesting cuz if it's too easy it gets boring exactly so there's there's a lot to think about when it comes to games um luckily for the most part games aren't a life and death thing so <laughs> there is a lot of um forgiveness in terms of being able to improve it. Um especially if it's something like a mobile game where they you can have multiple releases. Mm-hmm. So but That's we did great. a lot of testing as well just to make sure we were understanding like what was too hard, what was too easy, um, and all that. Um, and then now I'm uh working for obviously credit union. So that is also a completely different field. So I would say I've worked at like basically every single job has exposed me to a different domain. Mm-hmm. um and it reveals a lot of different things you need to really concentrate on and understand and consider um so for credit union you know us managing money security is a big thing and access is a big thing um mm-hmm. uh, when i say access i mean um is anybody able to use the app to be able to do their daily transactions? Because if it's super difficult, you mm-hmm. can probably understand if people start to get not so happy, especially you know during pandemic times where people don't want to go to a bank and they would rather do it in the comfort of their own home. We need them to be able to do their basic transactions easily, but not so easily that you have to worry about security.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So there's, again, that balance of What's too secure, but what's convenient, um, and then having to strike that when you introduce new features and new designs. And obviously, there's also the consideration of an older audience because generally, like being a long-standing credit union, not all our members are going to be super apt with technology. So we have to consider that as well. It's not just oh, it's just people who use apps that we have to care about. Well. Yes, but also how do we help kind of onboard the older population that still wants to bank with us, no longer has access to or isn't comfortable accessing uh, kind of brick-and-mortar branches?
1: Yeah, that resonates with me quite a lot because I used to work at, uh, at a different credit union as well. And like all the same patterns about like the... Uh, thinking about not just kind of the more advanced and more, I guess, like younger population when they're so easy with the technology, but like it was a very interesting learning for me to under, like to realize how different the levels of computer literacy even could be among the, the customer base, especially like looking at different generations and also some remote areas when they don't have access to technology as much as we do in the, in the cities. So it is very interesting differently. Uh, Takeaway for me, uh, and now like I question all the all the new experiences that I work on or I experience. How would it really survive the test of a of an older uh, user? And uh, again, older is just stereotyping this, but uh, yeah, it's kind of I guess like uh, the the computer literacy is is a better um, parameter to measure here, which is which could be very varied. Um to My surprise, it was at least to my surprise. So that's that's very, very, very like very similar uh, learnings that I had there as well.
0: Yeah, and something like an essential service, um, such as banking, right? It's mm-hmm. um, it isn't just a technology company, and that's also another nuance that people have to think about when they are applying to different jobs. Um, tech based, like tech first, I should say, tech first companies have very different resources, have very different dynamics, have very different maturity, um, have different velocity, et cetera, et cetera, than a company that where tech is one of their services but isn't necessarily their core service.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and it's not to say one is better than the other, but it's just if you experience that environment, you'll notice that there is some discrepancy between those dynamics that come with it.
1: Totally. Yeah, I had exactly the same observation that like the... In the financial industry, the financial services and products are the core value that the company offers, and the technology kind of more supporting this. When in the tech, like tech startups and like more, I guess like more tech focused companies, tech products, like it's it's a bit reversed, and um, definitely yeah, financial is like not the primary focus area for for those companies. So yeah, mm.
0: and yeah. not there to say it can't option. be, uh, it's just that. There's, there's just a lot of things. There's a lot of, yeah. um, I guess, regulatory type of things sure. that we would have to worry about and not just be like, oh, yeah, we're just going to throw out all these innovative things like, you know, yeah, dance-activated withdrawals or something like that. Um, yeah. There's, like, just a lot of considerations that, that have to sure. be made. So as much as we are investing in a lot of technology... Um, it's it's one big piece of many pieces.
1: That's true. And I remember this was like one of, I guess, my a bit frustrating points uh, of experience working uh, in financial industry with all this like legal and compliance layer that kind of was just cutting out things that you would love to get in, but it just like wasn't reasonable to, to expect them to approve it uh, for a bunch of reasons just because of the legislations. So this is like quite... Demotivating at, at some point, <laughs> yeah. But that's a reality. I think that's just kind of uh, minimizing the risks and reducing the the cost of the some like releasing something that's not uh, following those rules, and then seeing the negative impacts of those decisions um, on the customers who who may have like losing their uh, last uh, dollars from the account just because you release something like some MVP quickly.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Cool. So, yeah, okay. like robustness yeah.
0: is a really big thing, etc.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah. certainly. Yeah, exactly. So you can rely on this technology and the, the offerings. Um, okay, so let's switch to the kind of the common questions that uh, the designers who are trying to find their first job right now uh, may have. And I want to start with a bit of kind of a, a general one. So thinking like if you were starting today, like if imagine that you're a new designer trying to enter the field and you're trying to find their first job. How would you really stand out, especially with the current market when there is just like overwhelming number of entry-level applicants and very, very few um, companies who are who are hiring those entry-level or junior folks? So how would you really stand out for, from, from the crowd?
0: I would definitely focus on my portfolio as much as possible. Um, make it seem like even if I didn't have real-world experience, I would make sure that I at least did enough research uh, and did enough side projects that I had something to show for it to be able to showcase my thought process, Mm -hmm. Um, going from point A to point B, what kind of research that I've put into it to make this project, uh, and then what kind of a pseudo final product I can uh, showcase to my potential employer. Because right now, uh, as you've mentioned, there's a lot of entry level designers who I want to get in. varying types of qualifications. There's a lot of people with degrees, PhDs, masters, but there's also people who come out of kind of boot camp type schools. Uh, so for example, Red Academy, BrainStation, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and in terms of which one is better, I think that's that could be a long argument, but I think what you need to be able to do is prove to your potential uh, employer that you have the chops and what that looks like is being able to clearly explain how you complete your entire design process. And so that's what I would focus on trying to be able to articulate uh, in a self-serve type of capacity. So I should be able to send the link over or whatever it is, send a CD, whatever you want. Um, (laughs) Do people still use CDs? Um, And (laughs) The employer should be able to review that without any trouble. Uh, And then my CV also has to be very clear in terms of what my technical skills are. Um, And then any relevant skills I can pull um, from possible other jobs that I've had that may not be UX, but there are some soft skills that you could definitely pour it over. Um, And I err on the side of less is more. Um, So don't try to overwhelm your CV, especially if you don't have tons that are relevant because, you know, just kind of speaking to when I hire, I find it actually a little bit overwhelming or uh, annoying when I have to really try to discern what I'm supposed to read in that CV because they've tried to put graphics in and they've tried to Mm -hmm. add color. And firstly, a lot of, bigger companies have like a parsing system where mm-hmm. you're it just formats into text <laughs> so when you have like flowers on it and all these <laughs> polka dots and rainbows on it it doesn't translate Firstly, because all I see is the text uh, secondly I don't know what I'm supposed to be looking at um, I appreciate the attempt on creativity but a CV is one of those documents where someone needs to be able to see it and know what to look at what the f- highlights are within the first Mm -hmm. 10 seconds. If I can't figure out what the highlights are, I'm moving on to the next candidate.
1: Mm -hmm. So what exact highlights are you looking for in a resume? Like what, what kind of is the first and the second piece of information that you're trying to spot on the page?
0: I want to be able to spot if people are even able to define what user experience is through their CV. So that could look like them explaining what skills they have. Um, or them trying to get me to look at their portfolio. There are ways to try to get you to look at the portfolio. Um, obviously different hiring managers prefer different methods, but they could always say like, you know, uh, is skilled in speaking with consumers on this subject. Please see, you know, slide seven of my portfolio. And then I'd be mm-hmm. like, Oh, I wonder what they did in slide seven. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but the most important part is keeping it concise. I need to be able to see it and go, oh, okay, user interviews is something that they're strong at. Okay, let's let's see how they can prove it. Um, it's part of, it's basically your elevator pitch, but on paper. Um, so how are you going to entice me to dig a little bit deeper?
1: Can you recall seeing a creative type of resume that was actually designed in a way that it wasn't conflicting with your goal when you're looking at the resume in particular, like finding the right information uh, without being distracted by the visuals, because I see like there is some value in the in the creative format. Um, I mean, like I'm frankly also like a fan of the more just kind of content, focusing on like the right like visual hierarchy, so I can find the right answers that I'm looking for. The, the visual layer, uh, from what I've seen, I cannot even recall kind of a, a well designed. Um, like creative type of resume uh, or CV that was not harming my goals, which is trying to find the answers. So I wonder if you have seen a good example like that and if it's even possible.
0: I think it is possible. Um, And I'm going to give a very kind of flaky answer here where (laughs) it also depends on what your focus is. So if you want, for example, visual design to be part of your scope, Mm-hmm. then if you have your personal brand logo or something like that, that's really cool because it really stands out. And then and then I'm like, oh, okay, this person actually does know visual design and I, and I can rely on them in addition to whatever skills that they listed on their resume. Um, if that isn't part of your spiel
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you're like a researcher or something like that, or you're trying to prove to me you're a UX writer, then that has to be evident in your CV. If you're a UX writer, I hope that your CV is so well-written that I can get everything in the shortest amount of time as possible and know exactly where to zero in on if I give you an interview. Um, So it's also, your CV is also almost part of your portfolio, for the lack of a better description, um, because that's your first impression that you're going to make. Unfortunately, the hiring manager isn't usually the first to see the resumes, Mm -hmm. They're usually the second or third. And so you also have to consider, I hate saying this, but (laughs) but you have to consider using buzzwords where the recruiter will go, okay, this is worth passing off as a shortlisted candidate. Uh, Because if it doesn't make it past the recruiter, even if I think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, I won't see your CV. Um, So there's just kind of those those things that you have to make sure that you're aware of. that probably didn't actually answer your question. <laughs> but um, but in terms of like a creative CV, yes, it can work. It depends on what area you want to focus on when you're applying for a job. That's mm-hmm. my Cole's Notes version.
1: Um, Sounds good. Uh, I would like to understand a bit better, like maybe you can give an example of how do you work with recruiters or how have you been working with recruiters when you need to hire somebody for your team? What's really... Because and obviously, I have the same um, kind of observations uh, when I, I've been working with recruiters. That it's impo- it's practically impossible to expect that they will understand the the industry and the requirements as much as as the expert will do. So that's that's totally cool. So what's your input? Uh, what's actually yeah? What's their input from you to? to seek out in those uh, kind of like the first layer of screening uh to then com- compile like a short list of candidates so do you, do you give them the, the keywords or like key responsibilities or the number of years or maybe the previous companies they worked at so like what, what's your what's your yes process here like how do you really work with the recruiters for 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 them to do their job better
0: yeah so across my different jobs obviously i've i've hired for Um, different teams I've worked at, not just my current post. Um, And so I've kind of worked a little bit differently depending on if it's an external or internal recruiter. Um, If it's external, what I tend to do is, it depends on the job grade, which I mean by that is seniority. So if it's like, an, I actually haven't ever had a chance to hire a junior designer, uh, but I have considered them if it's like an intermediate designer type of job. but in that case, they I would ask the recruiter to then review the portfolio to look for examples of design process and design. And obviously they can't necessarily tell me yeah, yeah. this is the greatest design process diagram I've ever seen, but at least they could see it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost more of a checklist than a mm-hmm. um, quality check. And so I also get them to then ask a screener question. So if they go, okay, yeah, I think this person's portfolio looks good. uh, Then I say, okay, great. Can you ask them these two questions before we even like call them up? Because otherwise it's a waste of everybody's time. So questions I personally like to ask is what's your design process? Um, And what is user experience to you? Um, Based on those two answers, I can then better determine if they know what they're talking about. Because I kind of feel like UX is one of those terms where, because people know it's like a hot commodity right now. they just kind of sneak it in um, but they might not necessarily actually understand what it means Um, like some people say things like oh the the ui is separate from the ux or something like that and i'm like well what do you mean by that right uh so i'm very sensitive to those things because (laughs) it actually means something um so i don't necessarily disagree but you have to tell me what you mean by that because if there's any type of vagueness or if i feel like you're just trying to pull a fast one then likely i'm not open to discussing the role further with you
1: yeah i completely agree like the the common vocabulary that uh, people seems like don't use uh, is one of the biggest struggles that I've seen, like, especially with, like, role definition and, like, how all these different other types of pro designers uh, kind of showing up, like, as a more trained job title when, in reality, it could be something that was used before already. But definitely, I think it's a it's a good strategy to, uh, to make sure that you're on the same, at least you understand what they mean by these uh, terms that, like, some others, uh, other people would have different uh, definition for themselves because it also is being formed from like basically what they learned, how they learned it, and uh, what they have worked on before, right? Like, so it's all really kind of forms your own perspective on all those different terms. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's that's a totally resonating comment um, on the terminology differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and then okay. in terms of like mm-hmm.
0: a tip for those... Uh, like those that want to answer it, I would actually say it's better to be specific than to be generic. The more generic you are, the more I think you're just making stuff up and just trying to send it over. But if Mm -hmm. you're specific about um, the process or at least what you want to focus on, even if you get down to just what you want to focus on, it then helps me understand, okay, this, this person actually thinks about these things and thinks about the different processes and steps involved rather than just, I'm gonna look at Wikipedia and copy and paste what they've put in as user experience definition, right?
1: Okay, so let's um, let's talk about the future. I would like to hear your thoughts, especially with like all the recent, and I'm sure how 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 closely you're following like the AI and machine learning advancements, and how they're trying to automate more and more tasks involved in creating and designing, actually creating as a whole thing. Uh, digital products and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on maybe there is some kind of a niche or a set of niches or verticals within the UX design space that would be less likely to be automated soon so it's going to feel more future-proofing the job of a designer especially if you if a person can choose their kind of the direction they go uh, what do you think will be automated first what will be what do you think will be not automated at all, and uh, would be kind of more long lasting as a as a profession.
2: Hmm.
0: This is very deep. Um, <laughs> I kind of think anything that involves patterns is going to be what's going to be automated the quickest. So anything that requires an actual personal touch, for example, customer service related things, um, where you have to actually have a very unique answer or response, those will keep you safe. And that's kind of vague, but when I say patterns, I mean like, for example, if there's only a standard way to do type ahead, right? Um, or there's a standard way to design buttons. Um, so while it might, it might not be automated in the traditional sense, it might at least be templatized. So. We all have seen that now, for example, Squarespace or other types of um, companies, they just come up with templates. Everybody uses those same like five mm-hmm. designs. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of creative realm has kind of been monopolized by that already. So I would I would actually consider that automated, even though it isn't in the traditional sense. Um, so I would I think those types of tasks um, are very easy to start automating because you just kind of it's just plug and go. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Whereas, for example, I think usability testing user research, while there are attempts to do it through kind of more automated types, I think it's when it's qualitative research, there's always going to be a human element that needs to be available to really parse the specific information that you're looking for, um, to be able to, uh, change up the script if someone goes totally into an unexpected direction. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, if it ends up being automated, it is what it is, but I think it's just a little bit harder to replicate when there's unexpected situations that arise from, from things like that. Also, um, innovation. So anything that you are designing that isn't necessarily something that's standard. is something that's going to be harder to innovate because, I mean, or it's harder to automate because how do you automate innovation? So there's there's a little, I think there's a little bit of space in that to be able to mm. explore as well. Um, yeah.
1: So thinking from the, I guess like the the whole spectrum of all the activities uh, and methods that and phases of the design process that um, a person can go through. Let, let's let's just take like one generic UX like designer um, as as a job description, job title. But they do everything from like the initial discovery to like the end like post launch support and like iteration and like te- like testing and improving. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's a, it's an endless things uh, list of things that you can do there. So from that, as I, like I'm just kind of trying to recap what you mentioned about the automation. So the last stages of that, like the more like visual design and like the the, the icing on the cake, is more likely to get automated with, and maybe already kind of being automated by some systems like that. So you can reuse the existing either design system, which I remember like one of the big ones was like Material Design when they just launched that mm-hmm. few years ago. Like everybody started just jumped on this board and uh, on the screen and then like started re- like you you could see like these patterns everywhere it's like <laughs> did, did google build this <laughs> and um it's kind yeah. of like blindly following like the easier existing toolkit that you just like copy paste which is definitely reduces reduces time to kind of launch something which i understand completely uh and then like the the, the initial discovery and like really understanding people and uh, um Adjusting the process and the conversations along the way while kind of constantly analyzing how it goes, like in real time, is uh, is harder to automate, um, I guess. It's not as easy to automate as with just the UI piece. Is it a good mm-hmm. summary?
0: Like something that you can't standardize, um, mm. I think, is the, those are the pieces where it's a little bit harder to automate um, because you have to have some element of, uh, flexibility uh, mm-hmm. whereas things well and it's it is it's a little bit ironic because as a UX designer you actually want to be able to create standards and follow standards and have consistency
2: mm-hmm.
0: and so I'm certainly not saying don't do those things because those are very important um, but it's just those things are where all that streamlining can happen as in your words
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. that's true Mm-hmm okay, um what are your thoughts on boot camps and um the problem that I'm seeing and I've heard about from many many people, especially from the hiring side as well that the applicants that they receive uh, who are just kind of graduated from boot camps they all look the same. They all use a templatized uh, like one and a half or like one and one more tiny project uh, case study portfolio that, like almost impossible to differentiate between each other. Um, and I've heard that from also from the from the uh, graduates and students of boot camps uh, that even though nobody promises them anything like directly, the in between the lines message is that it will be super easy to find a job right away after you graduate, like with with too too much waiting time and applying to like hundreds of jobs, which mm-hmm. seems to be not true. Um, So what are are your thoughts on, on, especially from the hiring manager side, on the applicants you see from boot camps and what they can do, what could they do to, I guess, spice it up, so to say, and uh, improve their chances to be more relevant uh, for the jobs that they apply?
0: So I've actually taught at uh, a boot camp before,
1: Hmm. and
0: I would say that's a very good uh, starting point But that should be where it helps you understand how to build your portfolio, and that shouldn't be your portfolio alone. Um, So what I mean is that it now equips you to work on your side projects, uh, work on shaping your portfolio. But what I've seen, and I think this is what you're alluding to, is that a lot of students just end up showing their final piece, Mm -hmm. their final project as their portfolio. Um, That's a problem because it's not necessarily a realistic project. So if you're going to show me something in a portfolio, it has to be something that's um, realistic and attainable. And, or you have several examples of different types of domains uh, that your designs could be applicable for. Um, But, like, because it's kind of blue sky when you're doing stuff in school, right? Like, I'm designing something to end world hunger, so I'm going (laughs) to build these things, right? Uh, But those portfolios, while they are interesting and they work in an academic setting, it's hard for a hiring manager to understand how that translates into that particular job or that specific domain. Uh, So I would say... A use the. It's not that the boot camps aren't a good starting point. They, I think, they are for the most part and for a lot of people in terms of time investment uh, and equipping you with skills. Uh, but you need to take that a step further. So I would say when you're finished the boot camp, that's just the beginning. That's not okay. Now this translates to, you know, a six-figure position um, at a at a Silicon Valley company. Like that's not really how it works. It has to be, okay, so now you have the skills. What are you going to do with these skills? Well, you should build a portfolio to convince me that you are different from your peers, um, so that I could actually pay attention to you. Just because there is such a saturation. Even just the boot camps alone, there's so many different uh people that offer these these programs now and they're all like 12 months 16 months four months whatever. They're really short yeah. programs. Um, and their focuses are pretty similar. So now I need to know, okay, so why why do I care about your particular bootcamp? So the bootcamp will actually not get any attention. It's the, at the end of the day, it's the portfolio if you don't have any experience. So that's my very lengthy answer to that. Um, I would even say, be more aware of student and internship positions when you graduate from bootcamp. Or even actually, even from even if you have a school degree like a diploma or a master's or a PhD, I think internships, if you don't have any experience to back it up, internships are a really good way to go. I know the salary might not be the most enticing for the most part, but that's where you get that. You have to think of it as they're paying you to go to school when you do an internship. Think of it that way, and then suddenly it's it's way better right oh they're paying me to go to school and Mm -hmm. I get something to show for it on my resume Um, because I would say that I learned the bulk of my skills in working uh, in my internships rather than sitting in a classroom
1: yeah totally agree how would you really overcome this especially for boot camps I think in Canada as far as I understand they are not eligible for internships so it's only like companies that have some agreements or arrangements with the uh, post-secondary ed- education institutions?
0: Mm-hmm. Do you know so, about this? Yeah, so if internships are not uh, applicable, then I would say look for volunteer experiences. And I know that, uh, yeah, you're not getting paid, this and that. But again, I think you have to look at it from a stand- standpoint of, hey, you're getting experience for free. Um, Obviously, I don't want people taking advantage of you guys. That's not what I'm telling you here. But for example, if you have a friend's business that could need some help in the in UX, whether it's their website or their app or whatever it is, maybe try it out. Maybe try offering some help and seeing if you can get something out of it so both sides benefit from it. Your friend benefits from it. You benefit from it. Or if you have some kind of organization you're uh, connected to, you can always offer your services Um, To see if you can help them. And even if they don't end up using it, it's another opportunity to make your portfolio a little more realistic, a little more relatable. uh, And for your hiring manager to be able to get a little more context on how they can use your skills.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. There is a big debate about working for free. But um, I also... Consider this as a more like a learning opportunity, especially at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I I also again I'm also against the kind of free labor uh, concept that like some of the I guess agency world um, suffering from, like when clients just kind of demand uh, more and more work for free. So that's definitely no go. But like as a learning opportunity, if you feel that, and and I consider this as a marketplace, right? So basically, if you are not at the level when you can get paid for your skills and your experience and your knowledge uh then like you need to bump it up you need to kind of uh advance in this learning curve uh to get to this level when you you will be get paid or there will be somebody who would be willing to get pay, uh, to pay you for your uh, contribution so and um, until you're there like it's like any real world experience even if it's free i would be open to this idea for sure so i think it's mm-hmm. a good good, good call
0: and if you don't want to like, if you don't want to feel trapped and go, oh man, now I feel like if I say no, this is this is going to ruin me. Um, you can just not pitch it to them. You could just do it as if, like for example, I'm just visiting a random website and I'm like, man, this website could use some work. Do it off the side of your desk, and have it in your portfolio, but not pitch it to them because that way they can't demand more of you. But then you still have a portfolio piece to show. And then I could say, hey, if I were the designer for this website, these are the changes I would make. These are the improvements you would see. If there were any KPIs, these are the ones that we want to hit. Right. So like something like that could work or you could even start with more of a plan for that company. Like, um, hey, I'd love to help you guys. Um, why don't you take a look at this pitch? And then if they like it, then you can talk about whether you can get a small monetary um compensation for it so it doesn't necessarily need to be hey i'm gonna do 300 hours of work for you guys and (laughs) not take a dime Uh, it doesn't have to it shouldn't look like that Mm -hmm. um but there should be some kind of mutual uh benefit to to kind of have be an outcome for that
1: yeah i agree that's that's a good idea uh okay let's go to your uh current experience at coast capital and um if you could share a bit more details, and you mentioned about the team structure, which was kind of quite interesting and already more specialized than um, the, I guess, the average in the mar- in, in this market. Uh, what's your design process like for a typical project? Can you describe this?
0: Um, it's been evolving because uh, we've been growing at quite a quick pace, so we've kind of had to adapt the methods a few times. Um, But now we've started to include uh, a, a main UX designer. And when I say main UX designer, I'm saying that because there's usually, that's the goal is to have one UX designer dedicated to a portfolio. And so that designer is then responsible for if there's any specializations required, for example, there needs to be usability testing or if there needs to be visual design aspects, they would be the ones responsible to get the team involved in those aspects. But they are the main designer and point of contact for the bulk of that particular product. So the product design, uh, the product owner or product manager um, is supposed to engage that dedicated UX designer as early as possible so that they can basically collaborate. The UX designer never makes product decisions, but they're basically the counsel to say, hey, this might not be the best space or hey, did you consider this? And so that there's a dialogue for that product creation, rather than just, um, as many of us <laughs> have probably seen, um, just you know the whole product has already been mm-hmm. designed from start to finish, and you're just there to fight fires. Um, so we're moving away from a fighting fire model. Like a reactive model is not something that anybody should pursue. Uh, we're trying to go more proactive.
1: Mhm. And um can you clarify what you mean by portfolio?
0: Oh, uh portfolio just means a set of products or uh types of products. So Do you have like an,
1: an example like a mobile app, uh um, it would be one of those no, products. No, it would
0: be like types of features because we don't have we don't for example in Coast Capital we don't have multiple apps. We have one app or mm-hmm. we have different it's available for different platforms, but it's still the same app. Um but there's different types of features. Um, there's different types of uh, focus. I can't really say too much because there's a lot of things I'm not allowed to talk about. So I'm trying to be careful about what I say and what I don't say. Um, But yeah, there's like different focus points. And so anything with the same type of focus point, whether it's technology related, audience related um, or feature related, that's considered a portfolio.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And this uh, primary or like a lead design partner for each of those portfolios mm-hmm. uh so basically the expectation is that they work as a at the beginning of the project they work as a consultant yeah uh, so they're the business team a,
0: a, mm, i don't know about cons- yeah consultant i guess i guess so like they're kind of like the conduit between um
2: advisor yeah advisor
0: kind of makes more sense but at the same time we also listen to what the business wants right so Mm -hmm. we can't just be like no we're not doing any of this it's a it's a give and take situation where we have to understand what the business need is Mm -hmm. um, but also the product manager is very involved as well so it might it mainly is the product manager that we're working with uh, and they're the ones that talk to the business to understand the main business requirements and needs um and kind of the um roi Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and um and business case for that particular item Mm -hmm. sorry my baby's super loud right now
1: (laughs) it's okay it's okay um thanks for kind of prioritizing time for this uh what's the ratio between the product managers and uh, designers
0: the goal is one-to-one so right now Mm -hmm. it's not quite one-to-one um but that's that in an ideal world, it would be one-to-one because I think that's necessary for each product manager to have their dedicated UX designer. Um, And that's why I say that the UX designer doesn't necessarily do every step involved. It's just that they're that kind of lead person to be able to um, get help when the help is required.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, what's your, actually, no, um, I forgot to, to ask one more thing. So after this initial conversation and the alignment with the product manager uh, on what we need to build or design, right? Uh, what, like, how do how do you involve users in this process? Like, how how does this kind of the the user centered design methodology being applied uh, at Coast Capital?
0: Uh, there's a lot I can't talk about there, but I would say in general, from my experience, um, so this is not specific to any job it's important to talk to users as early as possible, even from the product inception phase. So if you're trying to create a feature or a new product or whatever it is, it's probably important to figure out, I know it kind of also crosses into market research, but you kind of have to make sure that you're actually solving a real problem. Um, Because from past experience, a lot of times we end up trying to retrofit a solution to this fictitious problem. Um, So in general, um, I would say it's really important to make sure that you know what the problem is and that you're validating that that's an actual problem that you're Mm -hmm. trying to solve for.
1: Mm -hmm. It's more like a lean startup uh, methodology, like really validating early on before building something and realizing that it's not needed.
0: Mm -hmm. And I understand that the bigger the organization the more difficult that becomes because sometimes there's um, external pressures, um, Mm -hmm. et cetera, that require you to do certain things. Um, But I think it's also important to still have that data, even if you end up having to do the, even if it comes out saying nobody wants this, but um, for example, the, whoever is in charge says no I want to do it anyway. It's just good to have it, um, for later on when they want to iterate on it because the adoption is lower than expected or something like that to say, well, should we revisit this, right? Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Uh, What's the interview process? So where does it start and uh, what are the steps and how long does it take?
0: So this has been evolving at my time at Coast. So again, I'm going to talk about more of a general experience that I've had. It's Mm -hmm. usually it's a phone screening. And that's usually with the recruiter. And then they will, with the set of questions that I provide, um, they will then try to shortlist some candidates for me to meet in person. Once I meet a candidate in person, um, again, this is not specific to any company. This is just my general preference. Um, I prefer to bring them in, get them to walk through at least one project on their portfolio, in some cases, it's not possible just because kind of even in our discussion here, there's a lot of things I can't say just because of mm-hmm. confidentiality. Um, so if they're not able to show me too much, then I'd ask them to either give me like a redacted version or talk me through a generic process.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: If I can't get a good feeling for what their skills are at that point, then I would ask them to do an actual exercise either in the interview itself, depending on how much time allows or a take home exercise that they have to come back with um, to show me that they can back up their talk. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And Mm -hmm. then at that point, then if they, if I feel like, okay, now I understand their skills and I feel like it fits with what I need at this point, uh, then they would meet the more senior parts of the team. And then if it, and then if they like the candidate, then we would move forward. But if they have the skills, but nobody likes them, then unfortunately, um, it is what it is. In that case,
1: that makes sense. Um, okay, maybe one last question, and uh, then we need to wrap up already. Already way over time. <laughs> um, so, f- from the coast capital experience perspective, um, do do they hire entry level designers? Like, uh, how do they support this? Uh, junior folks.
0: Mm, so right now, I have not hired any entry-level designers. Um, it's not that I don't want to. We just don't have the capacity to be able to mentor people right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that any entry-level designer will require some sort of mentorship and handholding to some degree,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and I we can't. We're not in a position to be able to do that right now. As mm-hmm. we ramp up our resources. Um, it's a possibility, but I also don't want to do a disservice to a new designer and bring them on and give them zero support because that's like the biggest way to leave a sour taste in someone's mouth is to just kind of like drop them in and be like, see ya, and when they're just like fresh out of school or haven't had the luxury of understanding how uh, organizations work uh, firsthand.
1: Okay, so I think that was like super super insightful and super valuable um, answers that you provided. If uh, somebody wants to follow up and ask you a bit more questions, uh, or just have a chat um are you first of all first of all, are you open to this right now because I understand you're super busy and second, if you do, uh, how they can reach out
0: uh so I'm very open to answering questions. The best way is email because then you won't hear this guy <laughs> talking the entire time. <laughs> And also then I'm not dependent on if he's awake or napping or screaming, um, because I can just answer emails whenever. Um, And then, like, obviously, it doesn't have to be a one-time email. I'm happy to follow up if my answers are not clear. Um, And if... A phone call is required at that point, then we can figure it out then. But I don't want to bite off more than I can chew. I don't like to over promise. I like to over deliver and under promise. So I can say if you send me an email, I'm happy to reply to it. Um, or you can reach out to me through LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, so for now, so, actually, I think LinkedIn is the best way to reach me if you send me a message there. And then if I think it requires like an email long correspondence, then I will send you my email and then we can discuss at that point.
1: Perfect. Sounds like a plan. I'll include your link uh, in the notes. Um, that's that's it for today. I really, again, appreciate your time and uh, sneaking it in within your busy day and uh, all the insights. That was super, super insightful and very valuable. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Okay, thank you, Joyce, and uh, have a good day. Yeah, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you want to see more episodes and support this podcast, the best thing you can do is leave a review on iTunes and share with your friends and colleagues. If you have specific questions you would want me to answer, you can submit them on the UX Career website. Go to uxcareer.co slash
2: questions. Goodbye, friends.